Your best. See. Hey, be okay? Yeah. Okay. Three. Sick in this past week, but I think it's drainage. And I can talk. Yeah, yeah. I was terrible. So you're, are you going to teach today? Yeah. Are you kidding me? It's going to be hard. Yeah. Okay. Well, another thing I want to tell you is that I may get up and leave because I'm a little <laughs> concerned about Bob. Of course. In fact, I'm not sure. I think I'm going to call him and check on him. Yeah. And if I'm not here, that's why. I understand. You get better. Thank you. Hey, Daryl. 
just have to kind of raise your big voice and oh, say, Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> You're kind of tough. You sound like you got a cold or something. Well, I had one earlier in the week, and now the drainage, I think, yeah, yeah. I can't, can't talk. Yeah. You said you said you were 18, didn't you? Yeah, verse 32. Okay. Yeah, okay. but I just say, yeah, 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 18. Yeah. Yeah, the verse. Yeah. Uh, we'll see how I do. Hello. Hey, I I can move this back. Oh yeah. Yeah. Hey Carol. You gonna ride home today? Yeah, I gotta ride. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, front fruit lion. Hey, are you a, I can't even remember. How many nights are we staying again at this hotel? Okay, I thought it was two or three. Yeah, three. So Friday, Saturday, and Sunday? That's correct. Okay. We'll leave Monday morning. Okay. Yeah. Are you, are you going to bring anything like water or water? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you said they did have a refrigerator? Yeah, they said they want to have a refrigerator. Yeah. We'll try to see if I can get some sweet tea. Definitely have to do it. May need to freeze them up too. Oh, me too. Me too. I'll let you get up there.
morning. We sent you off to move another here. I didn't know until I got here this morning that we were not going to be downstairs. We're going to be up here. And that uh, I forgot that Philip was teaching this morning, and unfortunately he's lost his voice. So. We're going to be uh, listening listen up close when he gets up here, and I'll, we'll turn the mic up when we have to. So. A couple quick announcements. I got this from the office, church office this week. We are doing the wonderful Wednesdays again this year with providing ice cream or some kind of treat on the Wednesday night. Is that something we want to do as a class this year? Yes? All right. I'll, I'll find us a date for that one. diabetic, but his blood sugar is not, he's dropping. 
buddy, Captain Street, here this morning. I actually met her son, who lives in Virginia. He's a really nice young man.
There we go. <clears throat> I think I don't hear the buzzing here, so I think that'll probably will work. It says I'm cutting in and out, but it's, it's me, it's not the mic. Okay. All right. I'm definitely not used to holding a microphone because I. Although I've never had a DNA test on myself, I feel like I'm part Italian because I like to move my arms a lot. So um, physically, I'm feeling pretty good. Although I've, this past week I've been below par, but uh, I feel physically I feel fine. It's just my uh, voice hasn't caught up with my uh, uh, the other part of me. So anyway, we're in Revelation chapter 11. You'll turn there. And please, if you have comments or thoughts, uh, feel free to, to bring them up because this is not meant, again, to be a lecture at all, but rather uh, a time where we can jump into this. But I will say at the onset that many scholars believe that chapter 11 is the most difficult one to interpret in the book of Revelation. may not be for everybody, but uh, most scholars would say it's a very, very demanding one. And actually, if we chase the, uh, the rabbits or voice the various interpretations regarding the two witnesses especially, uh, to any degree, it would probably take three months and you'd probably be more confused at the end of it than you were at the start of it. So we will not be chasing those rabbits there so much. I'll present some thoughts and we'll just go from there. But that, but I'll say at the onset, I'm, I'm not the repository of all knowledge. I'm far from it. But I don't believe that there's a number of interpretations, especially of chapter 11 or even of the book, um, that are worthy of as much consideration because I think they don't take into account something that's very, very important when you're looking at Scripture, when you're interpreting Scripture. And, and I'll emphasize this again. When John wrote his book to these seven churches, or even when he was, say, when Paul wrote the 13 letters, 
or in Matthew or any of the writers wrote their particular book. They were writing to a particular audience. They had those folks in mind primarily. And so given that fact, we must realize that when we are going through this book and doing what we can to interpret what John was saying, it had to mean something. And I would emphasize significantly to the people to whom he was writing. If it did not give them hope, if it did not give them comfort, I would dare to say that it wasn't of much value because this book was intended to give hope to people who were undergoing distress and a whole lot of it. They were enduring persecution, suffering. Many of these people would probably end up losing their lives. Many of them probably lost livelihoods. They lost friendships. They lost a lot. They needed to be assured that God was there, that he was in control. And I do believe this book emphasizes that very thing. So as we're going through here, I do think we do deem to keep in mind that this book had to have a primary meaning for the people of the first century. Now, we can certainly have it applied to us. As I have emphasized before, I believe one of the primary enemies of God's people as related in this particular book was the empire of Rome because of what they did. But from our standpoint, it may not be Rome. It could be a lot of other things though. So you just fill in the blanks there where it would apply to you in that regard. But as we go through here, we will be looking at it, I believe from the more of the vantage point of that. Um, Landon brought up a good point last week after class and he was talking to me a little bit about how certain am I am I that we're dealing with the um, empire of Rome um, I'll just say something very brief for his sake as well as yours but then hopefully when we get to it we'll be able to spend a lot more time on it chapter 17 chapter 17 of Revelation um, emphasizes and actually deals a lot more with that. He's dealing with the fall of Babylon from 16 to 18. We're not talking about actual Babylon. I believe we're dealing with Rome in this case. In chapter 17 at the very end, he, he actually, actually a lot through that particular chapter, he doesn't speak in symbols. He actually speaks much more, well, in an um, without symbols and actually when we go through that in chapter 17 when he talks about these um, these uh, seven heads and things like this I believe then he says we're talking about kings we can identify who these kings are but also at the end of chapter 17 he talks about one thing and I'll just read this one part then we'll go back to chapter 11 in chapter 17, uh, I believe that's where it is. He says, for God, in verse 17, for God has put into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand them over to the beast 
your royal authorities until God's uh, words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city. The woman was the earlier. It was this um, prostitute. He says, the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. That was Rome. That was Rome. So anyway, but let's go into chapter 11. Chapter 11, we're talking about the second part of the interlude that John introduced in chapter 10, verse 1. So in chapter 11, he's going to finish that through verse 14. Then he's going to start with, again, now the seventh trump, trumpet sounding in verse 15. He's going to pick up there. So again, he, he had the sixth trumpet sound, went on, then the interlude from 10-1, down to 11-14, then the seventh trumpet. But up until then, we're going to finish this other interlude. He says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and it was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with his worshipers. But exclude the outer court, and don't, not, don't measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. Virtually everything in this particular chapter is dealing with symbolism. I do not believe that we are to interpret these 42 months as 42 months at all. I don't believe that was the purpose that John had in mind. 42 months happens to be half of a seven, meaning because the people take 42 months as three and a half years. That's a half a seven, and, and a number of scholars, not all, but a number of scholars recognize this is, means time of turmoil, distress, uncertainty, an undisclosed period of time. So I believe that is actually what we're looking at here. But the symbolism that he gives us here by he gives John a read, and he says to measure, he says to measure three things. He says, go out and measure the temple of God, the altar, and the worshipers. Essentially, I think he's talking about the same thing. Measure the people. That concept is found also in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 40, beginning in verse 2, until chapter 42 and verse 20. In that particular text, again, Ezekiel was a captive, as I mentioned earlier this morning. He was a captive at the time of the um, destruction of Jerusalem in 586. He was taken captive in 597. But when he wrote his particular book, he wrote it in a vision. Much of almost everything he writes is in a vision-type language the whole way through there. And in chapter 40, verse 2, up until 42, verse 20, he is there to measure the temple. And, uh, for the sake of my, my, my voice in that, you'll need to spend some time reading that. He's also given a rod to measure the city and measure the temple and all the various things. But I will end up reading this as, as the conclusion of that. So you'll see what he's actually doing, what the purpose of this measuring was, is to separate the holy from the profane. God was separating those that are his versus those that aren't his. Again, an element of protection. Just like he marked the people in chapter 7, the, this mark they were to receive on their heads, that was to show they were God's people. They were protected by him. 
That's all what that was supposed to do. And in this case, they were going to be protected by God as well. No matter what the stress, whatever the problems you're going to be going through, know for sure that God has them in it in the palm of his hand. But I will read this passage in uh, Ezekiel chapter 42, which again talks about what this measuring actually is. I'll just read the last verse of that particular text. Again, it starts in chapter 40, verse 2, all the way down to 42, and verse 20. And again, um, verse 18 says, when he had finished measuring what was outside the temple area, he measured all these various things throughout the entire temple. Then he says, go, and he measured the area of all four sides. It had a wall around it, 500 cubits long, 500 cubits wide, to separate the holy from the common. That's really what the measuring was all about. Separate those that are holy versus not holy. And in the case of John in Revelation 11, when he says measure the temple, measure the altar, and measure the worshipers, it essentially God is having John separate his, his people. They are protected. He wants them to be measured. And you think, what could be the measuring rod? One thing would be scripture, but I will at least say it was an element to show that God has separated his people that belong to him. That's all he's saying there. And he's going to protect them. But just because God protects, and he does, that did not mean that some people would not suffer. That did not mean that some people would not die. Even in the time of Ezekiel, when God had them put that mark on them in Ezekiel's day too. He said, mark the people and I would protect them. But there's also a place in Ezekiel, I believe it's chapter 23, that said both the righteous and the unrighteous died. So just because God protects, it was not meaning no one was going to die. He did not promise that. But this is showing that what they're going through, they're not being judged by, by, by God. That God will be with them during this horrific time in their life. Philip. Yes, please. Uh, there at the end of that verse, he's not counting the Gentiles. He, but the word has already been preached to Gentiles. So he's not talking about the Gentile people as a whole. Is he? He's talking about, like you said, the evil versus Well, ba basically, yes, correct. Because he says, don't, don't major them. They're going to be the ones to, to do all this stuff. So he's showing the righteous versus the unrighteous. That's all what we're seeing there. And that is what it's talking about. And he says, they're going to trample the holy city for 42 months. For 42 months. Again, we're not dealing with so much time. It's going, it, it, re, it represents time, but not in the sense of three and a half years in that sense. Again, it's a broken seven symbolizing that time of uncertainty, distress, turmoil and things like, like this. Then he says, and this is where it actually gets more, more difficult, but we'll try to make it as simple as we can here. And I will appoint two witnesses. They'll prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. And they are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. And they stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes out of their mouths and they devour their enemies. 
This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so they will not rain during that time they're prophesying and they have the power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Well, coming to mind, he, he, you need to realize what John is doing, he's also modeling these witnesses after two particular in, individuals. I don't believe he's saying that these two people are going to be the witnesses, but rather I believe they are being modeled after these two. The two people that he's modeling from, Elijah, who closed up heaven for three and a half years, it didn't rain, and Moses. That's who the thing is being modeled after, those particular prophets. But all what we're seeing here, and I believe what we're actually seeing in by these two witnesses, again, we need to talk a little bit about, about the two and um, what, what that actually re represents. The number two, I'll get this here. Like I said, I don't like holding a microphone, but that's the way it goes, doesn't it? The idea of two witnesses is something very, very important. Two actually stands for confirmed and strength of testimony. The idea of two. And actually, that is a very prominent number in Scripture. You'll find it used many times throughout Scripture, and it's very, very important. For instance, you could not be accused of a particular crime unless you had what? At least two witnesses. You would be held guiltless. There must be two. And very, very important. Also, two people. I believe in one of the Proverbs that two people uh, are stronger than one. The idea of two people. Again, um, two witnesses uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, verse 16. Two witnesses are needed to verify testimony. On the limited commission, what did Jesus do? Send them out how? Two by two. Two is a very, very important number. Jesus, not only that, but in the Old Testament, there were a number of other pairs that God used. Moses and Aaron, his brother. He used two there. It's not an uncommon thing. So the element is the idea of confirming this type of witness. But I believe what we're actually seeing from these two witnesses or what they represent, what they actually, I believe, represent is the body of believers. It would be Christians of the first century who must go out and then preaching and proclaiming God's word. I believe what we're actually going to see from um, verse 3 on are three different phases of the spread of God's word throughout the world is what we're actually seeing. And I'll read through there and show uh, why I think that actually is, is the case. Basically, the first phase here, it says that they're gonna witness for 1260 days. Again, that's the same period, three and a half years. I don't believe we're dealing with just three and a half years. I believe what you're actually seeing here is, the description here is that this, these folks are gonna be unstoppable. When God's word goes out, from the time of Pentecost, at least for the next, let me go back over here and try to do this. There we are. 18 minutes, and it's all yours. Um, they were unstoppable. And so the idea here is that when these people go out there, it says, there, this fire is going to come out their mouth. Well, God's not trying to 
kill people physically if they try to harm these witnesses. It's just showing to these witnesses their message was going to be unstoppable for this certain period of time. There is, they're, they're going to be unstoppable. And that's going to be in verses uh, 3 uh, down through um, 6. So they're unstoppable. But then verses 7 through 10 is going to be the next phase, probably about 15 or 20 years after the time of Pentecost. It says, now when they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them. It's the first time we hear about the beast, so to speak. I believe that this is um, the same beast we're going to be talking about and learning about in chapters 13 and 17. 13 and 17. But he's introduced here. And again, who is he? He's the one that comes out of the abyss. We read about the abyss. The abyss is like this bottomless pit, representing evilness. I believe, ultimately, Satan in this sense, or at least demonic forces here. But so, after, see, the important thing is in this vision, the, the, uh, the witnesses got their message out. They were unstoppable. But then also, there's a lot of resistance, persecution, suffering going on. So that's why the beast is introduced at this point. And he will, um, he will um, overpower them and kill them. Well, the first part of the vision says they were, they, nobody could harm them. And now it shows that they're being killed. Again, just showing, I believe, another phase of Christianity. A little bit down the road, they're going to undergo a lot of persecution and suffering. They got the message out, but now they're getting a lot of resistance from Rome. Let me tell you, they did. A lot of persecution, a lot of suffering came from there. It says their bodies will be laying in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. This great city could either represent Jerusalem or Rome. Really wouldn't matter, I don't think, um, materially at all. These are just different figures of of the empire against uh, God, God's people um, in that sense. I wish we had more, more time to, to get with that, but we, we just, just don't. But anyway, it says, and for three and a half days, um, uh, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. And the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented them who live on the earth. So again, this is like the second phase of Christianity. And this was the phase that the first century church, at least when this book was being written, that they were go going through. They were going through a lot of this. They had a lot of resistance. You can read the story about Paul and Peter and others who had undergone a lot, a lot of suffering. Matter of fact, it wasn't too much before this particular book was written. There was something that Peter made a comment on, and I'd like to read what the Apostle Peter said. Um, a really a very profound, but also very important thing. The book of 1 Peter, by the way, was a book written about human suffering, or actually mainly about suffering as a Christian. And this is what he tells his people, or the people who he is writing to in 1 Peter 2, verse 11 through 17. 
Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourself to the Lord, to every human authority, whether it be to the emperor or to the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Peter was urging Christians of how they need to respond to such horrific mistreatment and brutality. He says, don't give them a reason. Don't give them a reason. Live your lives faithfully before God. Be respectful. He was just really committing them to do that. Then at the very end, he even says to honor the emperor. The emperor at that particular time was Nero, who happened to crucify him probably a year or two after he wrote this document. That is how Peter urged people to, uh, to live. And then in chapter 3, verse 8, he says this, Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, and compassionate and humble. Don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to do this, you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. They must uh, turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and on the ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That comes from a man who would be crucified for his faith in Jesus. Believe me, the early Christians underwent a lot of persecution. It's believed that Paul also, not long after the apostle Peter, was executed as well. I believe that he was decapitated. We don't, it doesn't tell us in scripture, but, it, but tradition says that he was decapitated for his faith. This was by the same empire that we're dealing with here. But then a little bit better news is in verses 7 through 10. But after three and a half days, it says they were just dead for three and a half days, these witnesses. We're not dealing with three and a half days, a time of uncertainty like that. But he says that after these three days, what's going to happen? The breath of life from God will enter them. And they stood up on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. They heard the loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. So again, all we're seeing is the next phase. Christianity was vindicated. People saw, both in the Roman Empire, they saw how these people responded to brutality and mistreatment. And because of that, they were a shining light to the world. 
It showed that Rome was not going to be victorious. And I believe that John's message to these people in the first century is do not give up hope. It's going to work out in the end for us. Yes, Landon. I believe the two witnesses are not two individuals, but rather it's the church. So it's not in the individuals, but the body of believers that were already separated, that were already measured here. I believe it's just the, the first century church. Maybe, maybe in the very first phase, more of the apostles, but I believe it's just the church as a whole, what we're dealing with here. Because they are, in fact, witnesses for the world. And Jesus himself says, you are a light. To the world and that's exactly what these people were and because of, of how they were how how they were urged by peter to respond to mistreatment that's going to open up the eyes of a lot of people and it did it did yes Landon. why are there two witnesses going back again to the idea of two is the element of confirming testimony of certainty and so it kind of fits there we're so it does deal, deal with two, but I believe essentially it is the church in this regard. But this is being viewed as these are the witnesses that go out. And it makes a difference. It shows them that God was with them from the very beginning. He was with them during the difficulty. They, they were killed. They, it looked like they were being defeated. They weren't. They were only dead for two and a half days. God raises them to life. People look on that. And their lives are changed. And Rome would be, in fact, Defeated, because then it goes on to say, at that very hour after they were taken up, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave God glory uh, from heaven. Again, uh, uh, it just is showing a judgment, of, in fact, of God. And this giving glory to God in this particular case may not be true conversion. Sometimes people do things and maybe acknowledge God, but in fact, they weren't really being faithful because that actually occurred in the Old Testament a number of times. In the days of, of a Nebuchadnezzar and even some of the, the other leaders there, uh, after they had mistreated God's people and God's child was vindicated, uh, whether you're talking about Daniel in the lion's den, Darius at that particular time, uh, he, you know, he said, boy, well, well let's praise the God of, of Daniel here. <laughs> you know, and so I think that's what we're seeing here. These, these, these people are just, they're, they're almost shocked at the way these Christians are responding. And so it's a very, it's a positive thing, but that doesn't mean everyone is going to be converted because of these witnesses. But then it says, the second woe has passed, the third woe is coming. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of our world has come, and the kingdom of our Lord, that is Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. I believe all what is going on here, from here until verse um, 18, essentially is saying this. We're basically getting the headline of the vindication of what's going to happen. We're seeing the outcome before the story is told. It's almost like it's a newspaper heading that says victory. Chapters 12 through 20 shows the struggle though. That's what 12 through 20 is going to be about. And it's going to be bad. Real bad for God's people. But he's letting them know 
They are victorious. They actually won. They will win. And that is what is to give our brothers and sisters and us in a secondary way hope. So when you're going through a horrible time, whether it's through health difficulty or suffering that you're going through at work or whatever the case may be, sometimes what we just need to do is to read the headline, victorious. You will be victorious in the end. God will see to that. Because it says here, the kingdom of the world has come. One thing we, we need to be assured of is this. The kingdom of God didn't, didn't start then. God has always been the king of kings and lord of lords. Always. There has never been a time, never been a time when God has not been king of kings and lord of lords at all. Everyone will have to answer before our Father. Everyone will have to answer before Him. He's in absolute control at all times. He's never surprised at what happens. He knows what's going to happen. But He also is a God who does not coerce. He wants volunteers. He wants people to voluntarily love Him and praise Him and honor him. And those that do will be rewarded beyond their wildest imagination. But God does not coerce anybody to do that. What he's done, he's wooing the people of the first century, and he's doing that to you when he calls you to be his. He loves you. He's done everything he can to show you that. And that's just one more example in this particular book. Any other comments or thoughts? I know we had to kind of go through that quickly and I apologize for that. And if my voice wasn't so bad, I probably could have said twice as many words. Uh, not that you would have understood them because I probably would have been talking so fast. It probably would have looked like my handwriting, which is not very good. But this is really a book to be of comfort to people. And I believe it can be. But we're going to be going through some rough area in the next meeting, some challenging areas that we're going to see from chapters 12 through 20 here. So he's getting the Christians aware of it. Read the headline, but you're going to be victorious in the end. But there is going to be a hard time coming. God has never promised people an easy life. Paul said something profound I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire. So that lets us know that we are up against a challenge when we're faithful before God. We just are. That doesn't mean it's all gloom, certainly not. Because God gives us hope. He always gives us hope. And he gives us a reason to live. And he wants us to proclaim the message that God is here to save humanity. Any other thoughts? Because I'm probably going to go on a three or three and a half days and of um, 
the, the code of silence, as Maxwell Smart would say. I'm going to have to go on this code of silence. Well, actually, he's a cone of silence, but I'm going to have to go on a code of silence for a little bit. Maybe through Wednesday. We'll see if that happens. Don't know. All right, any other observations? Yes, Tynan. Because they are the lost ones. They are the profane ones. I believe all what is happening in the very first two verses is God is separating the righteous, his own people, from the profane. And that's what the measuring was actually for. The measuring, because if you go back to Ezekiel, it was to separate the profane from the common. I mean, I'm sorry, the, uh, the, the, the holy from the profane. So I believe all what's happening here is that we have a separation, faithful, unfaithful. He says, these people over here, they're going to be the ones trampling on the city. They're, they're going to be the ones doing the damage. But I'm separating you. So God has separated his, his people. And some people also believe that what he's talking about is an identification of protecting them as well. Are we not included in that? Not well, by, by application, in that sense, yes. But again, this was written 1900 years ago. For our brothers there but you know but in application yes that is where where we would certainly fit in that because we are marked by God although it's not John's emphasis at all in this book to say this but I will certainly say it whether you're talking about chapter 7 when we're dealing with the great multitude and all of that and God says before all this stuff go, goes on go out there and mark my people Yes, God has marked each one of us too. He has marked us. We belong to him. We, we all belong to him. And we have reason to rejoice. That doesn't mean we won't go through a rough time. But the rough times does not mean that we're being punished by God either. Not, uh, not at all. And as I mentioned that profound truth earlier, in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32. God doesn't delight in anyone dying, whether you're saved or lost. God loves humanity. That's why he came to become human in the first place, was to save humanity because he loved humanity. It hurts God. God is vulnerable in there. He loves humanity. And he hurts when people die outside of him. So in that sense, we're like him and he's like us. It hurts him. Only wish that we could have the attitude that we could hurt like God hurts for the lost. Because sometimes I fear that we we just don't. Thank you very much for your patience. I know it's been a very difficult time listening, and I'm sorry about that, but um, in the next couple of weeks, I should be feeling a lot better. Thanks.
Christmas, very glad to have y'all. Y'all are from Colorado, right? Trent. Trent, right? Trent, yes, yes. I'm sorry, my brain is shot this morning. So, Bob? Don. Don? And Alisa. Alisa, okay. Uh, y'all don't like the grandbaby either, do you? No, we Is that your first one? Yeah. Yep. Is this your only daughter? Or yeah. No? yeah, we have a daughter and a son. Oh, okay. And um, our son's been married for almost five years, but no kids. Okay, well, they've only been married a year or so. Yeah, we were here for that, too. Yeah, head hair. I saw you holding her during worship service. You weren't a bit. She's adorable. Oh, pinch that baby and wake her up so she can play with her. Are y'all just in town for the weekend or? Yeah, we'll leave Tuesday. Oh, careful, Bella. Running around the man with the walker, that's not good. It's never good. No. It happens but all the time. In, in, it's, in it's kids. Our congregation, too. What part of Colorado are y'all from? Colorado Springs. Ah, nice area. Nice area. I'm, I'm recording while I'm talking here. I don't know how to turn that thing off. I've been standing there talking to this man recording it the whole time. I don't, even, I don't know for sure how to turn that thing off. I don't want to do, accidentally turn it off and delete the recording, so I'm just, you I'll just put it back in. Yeah, I'll, well, Jonathan's not in there right now, so I'll, I'll put it in there on the table. So. Okay. Thank you, Philip. Hope you feel better. So. He's, a, he's one of our substitute teachers. Our, uh, our One of our elders has been teaching this class, and he Philip fills in when the, the elder's not here. So. Very smart man. I've known him for a long time. And, I enjoy his teaching. Are you having the Bible Yeah, we have, uh, we have a decent membership. We have about 100 members.